Welcome to Southeast Asia's Growth Leaders, the podcast dedicated to the Southeast Asia high growth and early stage scene, where we ask industry leaders and experts for their experiences, insights, and advice on how to build and scale sustainable businesses in the region. My name is Sam Randall, and I am a partner at True Search. True is the world's leading executive search platform for technology and tech-enabled companies. Since our inception, we have partnered with tech startups throughout their growth phase from pre-seed to post-IPO. With over 300 search professionals in 14 offices across North America, Europe, Middle East and Asia, we have a modern and innovative approach, working with the founder and investor community to advise and assist in successfully scaling their businesses. With a decade of Southeast Asia search experience in technology, I lead the high growth and early stage practice for True in the region. I help startups through high growth stages with advice on talent and hiring, as well as providing search for co-founders, leaders and technical experts. This week on Southeast Asia's Growth Leaders with True, we welcome back Ollie Wood, Head of Talent at Golden Gate Ventures, Christian Ballard, Talent Acquisition Manager at B Capital Group, and Rachel Ung, Chief of Staff at Wavemaker Partners. In the second of this two-part series, we delve into addressing diversity as a leader in a growth stage business in Southeast Asia, and then spend a little time hearing from the panel on their top tips for founders before moving on to the now famous quick fire question round. Um, is it, there's an interesting sort of topic that you um, you spoke about there that, that when you're sort of within a particular network and you're um, you sort of grow to fill that network. And I think uh, what we see with networks is that uh, um, typically they are of a similar sort of background, they're of a similar um, experience level. Um, and this segues me uh, segues me very nicely onto my next point, which is how do you start building in diversity into a team, and at what point should you take um, diversity seriously. Obviously, there's a lot of talk about it internationally at the moment, but in a Southeast Asia context, um, what's the sort of key aspects of, of diversity for when you're looking at, at hiring into into the businesses? Um, perhaps I'll start with Rachel on that one. So I think, again, similar to what I mentioned earlier about talent structures and introducing it early, um, I think diversity is um, introduced very early on as well. And um, it can be um, as early as, you know, when you're determining what your values are, which determines the culture of your organization. I think at that point, you, um, you can introduce diversity already. You don't have to spell it out that it's diversity, but you um, certainly can um, have inclusion as, um, as one of your values. So when I think about diversity, especially um, in an early stage startup, you know, diversity is not just, um, talking about ethnicity or nationality or gender or age. It's kind of like the diversity of educational background and diversity of personality type, diversity of ability. Um, so I think, I, I think those are all things that founders should be thinking about. Um, the only thing is that um, I think it's values that you don't compromise on. So once you've, you've got your true north, that's what you stick with. Everything else, it's fine. I'll, I'll jump in after that. Um, if that's okay. Um, I think it's, it's I, I will repeat that at the earliest possible stage, um, there's, there's a great temptation, especially when setting up a company um, in the first place, that you set it up with people who are like-minded to you. Um, it's a great temptation, and, it, and it, it might be kind of too late by the time they've come to us um, in terms of their setup. Uh, that they've done it, but if we're talking to founders who are thinking of starting something, I would say from the earliest possible stage, bake it into all of your thinking. Um, the reason 
uh, like away from the the kind of ethics side of things, which I'm I'm hugely passionate about anyway. But let's look at it from a practical point of view. Um, most of your, especially this in Southeast Asia, there is such a, a, a a diverse mix of people in terms of ethnicity, in terms of religion, in terms of age, culture, demographic, everything. Um, who are your customers going to be? Um, they're going to come from every different type of background. And if you are a true, if you're supposed to be a true regional business, um, you're you're going to your customers are going to come from all sorts of different backgrounds and um, especially if you want our inv investment to be honest um we you know we uh, selfishly are very focused on on the consumer side of things um so how you engage with your consumer and making your consumer pool as big as possible is is pretty important to us um if you have a diverse mix um, and I'm talking less about the talent side, that's hugely important, but I'll come back to that. But in terms of just people from different backgrounds, different cultures, then you're going to understand, you're going to, when you're discussing how to approach a product, how to build something, how to sell something, how to market something and how to run things internally, um, to, to be optimal, having, um, as diverse a mix in your team. Um, is the best possible route to cover um, as much understanding as possible. It's also it's it's a huge source of intelligence. Um, I, I'm really genuinely I'm really proud. We we definitely you know we, we can all I think the other message is we can always be doing more for for like we can always be more diverse. Um, and I don't feel we're quite yet diverse enough. But um, we've aimed very recently to to. Um, hire someone who understands the China market um, because a lot of the people in, South, in the startup space in Southeast Asia quote about, about China, um, but not many people actually have a, somebody in their team who is from mainland China who can actually build the relationships up there and understand what's going up there. And every time, so we've hired someone and it's been amazing, it's been so illuminating and so refreshing to have that source of knowledge. And every time we've made a decision to hire outside of our immediate knowledge pool, um, our, our immediate mix um, in terms of our demographics or background or whatever, we've learned so much and it's sharpened our ability for us to identify deals or identify companies to partner up with different backgrounds and people. It's always enriched us. Um, so that's the background side. The other side, of course, is having that divert, like that diversity of thinking. Um, I want to be careful here that, um, yes, I absolutely believe in a diversity of thinking, but I don't want the diversity of thinking to be an excuse not to have more general diversity as well. Um, but I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to go into the kind of, the kind of, uh, I think to me, that's self-evident that if you have people from different uh, experience in terms of career-wise, you're going to have a more robust uh, business. I think that that that's sensible anyway. Yeah, I think Ollie nailed it when he talked about, you know, he brought it back to the business and customers and serving your customers and adding value and being able to do that properly 
because you represent your customer base, that vast, um, diverse customer base that you have. And you're only really able to do that properly if you're able to connect with that particular customer um, and understand their needs uh, and deliver the best experience possible. Um, you know, when you talk about diversity, it's the sum of all parts. You know, there are not diverse groups. And I think kind of that, you know, where I see, um, where I see kind of a, where I feel like is a bit of a misnomer is kind of diversity initiatives. Um, uh, and, and again, diversity is just the sum of all parts. The, the workforce itself is diverse and continuing to create more diversity by hiring individuals that, um, again, can better serve your customer base, um, that bring different perspectives to the team, um, that come from different backgrounds, that have different skills, that are smarter than you. You know, again, that it's that ecosystem of, you know, filling in gaps because we've all seen the business blunders that have occurred when there wasn't someone in the room to represent that, that perspective, whether it's a marketing campaign or a business decision. Um, so I think it's really important uh, when, when talking about um, diversity in your company, the why, you know, why is that important? And it really, you know, goes back to having high performing teams. There's a ton of data on having, you know, teams performing better, um, you know, businesses performing better. Um, so again, it's, re it's a real business need. Um, so as a founder, as a leader, I mean, it's your job to make sure that you're creating high performing teams, high performing businesses. And inherently that starts with creating a more diverse team. Um, and to, you know, Ali's point in keeping that frame of mind in everything that you do, kind of having that acid test kind of throughout your entire process. So um, am I attracting people who wouldn't otherwise come to me so I can broaden my network? And that might mean through um, more content, getting more content out there as a founder, doing more LinkedIn searches, connecting with more people outside of my immediate network and just kind of getting the word out there so you don't have that narrow pool of candidates who find you already or know individuals already work with you. And it's fine to lean into a referral program and, and, and you know, most companies do have roughly 30%, you know, of, of candidates coming through from referrals and that's, you know, that's fine. But making sure you're not overly reliant on that one source. Um, through to the job description. Will I self-select out because of the language that's being used in this job description? Is it overly masculine or is it, you know, am I, am I concerned that, you know, maybe there's a imposter bias because I need all of these credentials that I don't have, but I actually am able to do this job. Um, and, you know, we've seen in the data, typically that's, that's women who tend to self-select out of the process. Um, through the interview process, you know, going back to competencies, are we testing um, individuals with objective, with an objective lens uh, and trying to uncover evidence that fit these very objective competencies versus, versus kind of our nice to haves and our own inherent kind of subjective skills that we're looking for? To, do I, do I have a team of interviewers who represent the diversity of my company? And people feel like they're going to be you know, they have, they, they are reflected in leadership. And that's another piece. Not only do your customers want to see themselves reflected in the organization that's providing support or serving them or adding value for their, you know, for them, but employees want to see themselves reflected in leadership and then throughout the organization as well. Um, so it's a recruiting tool uh, in itself as well. Um, and, and for good reason. So there's a lot of things that, you know, you can do, but again, I think it's just making sure that you keep that lens of this is, this is good for business. It's good for high-performing teams. Um, am I creating a process that allows 
for consistent diversity of individuals to come through the door. And then another, the, the next thing you really need to solve for is, am I creating an environment where people can succeed? All people are able to succeed. Um, and that, and that's really, you know, the, the next step is making sure that, you know, uh, individuals feel included and that they feel like they belong within that, within that ecosystem as well. Do you, do you guys think um, that obviously with, with bigger businesses, there tends to be sort of more um, investment and engagement into diversity and inclusion initiatives. And obviously, I think if you look at any of the literature, one of the biggest um, key points to focus on is people's self-awareness, and uh, particularly around unconscious bias. Do you think that the startup community needs to do more to to sort of bring that point up? Because I can imagine, you know, you're in a you're in a small company, you're growing very quickly, you're really focused on on that on that goal, and you're not necessarily recognizing in yourself the behaviors that might be leading you towards a a, a sort of a less diverse um, sort of organization. Do you do you think that the startup should perhaps try and support that a little bit better? Yep. I, I just jump in quickly because this came up a couple of times recently um, where um, uh, I've been at, uh, either on webinars or, or on, on um, at conferences and I've seen founders um, excuse, trying to find excuses why they shouldn't have to be diverse. If they're still making those excuses for themselves, then and not uh, enough has not been done um as far as far as i'm concerned they're not thinking in the right way um when they go oh i i can't do this and this um because you know i can't find this kind of person so what do i do like i appreciate there might be a lack of a certain demographic in a certain um particular role um and i'm not telling you it that, like it we're not telling you on an individual hire that you forcibly have to almost create someone um, to in order to hire them. We appreciate that you need to grow quickly and that you need to um, find the people urgently and those people that happen to be available um, don't necessarily fit the, the diversity mix. Um, what we'd say, like, I appreciate that, but the, the, you should be trying to be diverse at every stage. And to me, the rhetoric of saying that um, we, we are... Uh, trying to excuse the fact that you're not diverse is not a good start. Um, they should be looking to, they should be doing everything they can. Um, when, when given an opportunity to be diverse, they be diverse. Um, I don't really, I, honestly, I don't really care about individual um, hires. It's about the, the, the broader picture of whether they are demonstrating they are trying to be more diverse. Okay, you couldn't find uh, a, a certain person of this ethnicity doing this role. What have you done to encourage that? Um, you know, have you spoken to the government and said, hang on, actually, we're not, we're not seeing from you that we're getting this. Could we encourage this in the universities? Um, can the universities be doing this? You know, as long as I feel that somebody is doing something, not just on the hiring basis, but trying to um be part of the conversation be you know noticing these problems and highlighting them um and and as i say being diverse when they can be um uh, as much as possible rather than as i say giving themselves excuse very quickly giving themselves excuses as to why they shouldn't have to be diverse or why they can't be diverse that that's what that's 
the part of it that that frustrates me. That's um, those people are not doing enough in this sense. Just to your point, Sam, about um, founders being, you know, really busy running their own business um, and, you know, how do they um, ensure that they don't have um, unconscious bias? I really like what Christian was saying about um, all of those different things that you can do to ensure you've got um, diversity and inclusion um, built into your business. And I think this goes back to um, our earlier points around having a talent structure really early on. When you've got a competency framework built up early on, then it, it lessens the risk of you having these unconscious biases. When you have um, an interview panel that represents, you know, your your diverse um, organization, it, um, it lowers that risk as well. When you introduce things like um, practical assessments during your interview processes, it provides a more objective view. And those are all things that it's around um, having a robust recruitment process and it just helps eliminate that risk when a founder is so busy running around trying to build their business and can't think and be super conscious about diversity all the time. Yeah, so it's interesting that you said that. I, you know, I had a former manager who we talked, she would talk about this a lot with us, um, just about going back to the fundamentals, especially in the recruiting org, to continue to you know speak a little bit more about talent. When you have the fundamentals in place, so when you mm. have repeatable, measurable processes in place. You have competencies that you've set out that tie back to business initiatives and outcomes and the culture. Um, when you have um, recruiters who are making sure that they are investigating every possible source of hire that they can, they're passively sourcing. They're always making sure to create a diverse slate in the beginning of the recruitment process, um, that they're you know, double checking that the job descriptions and advising, you know, hiring managers that these job descriptions are, um, you know, suitable to make sure that they open up the top of the funnel. When we, they make sure that, you know, there's a bit of content that's been created to help, again, create more robust pipeline that's more, again, diverse and, and meaning that it's coming from all over the place. It's coming from all different sources. When you do all of these things consistently for every single hire, you're just doing best in class recruiting. So forget about kind of diversity and inclusion. You're just doing your job and you're creating operational excellence. And when you strive to do that across the entire organization, but specifically within recruiting, you're kind of baking that in. Not to say that you shouldn't call it out, but when you start to bake it in and you start from the beginning to make sure that those, you know, that you're pulling the right levers and you're making sure that structure is in place, then you can go back and do the work where you can really identify where is the gap you know, do I, you know, we're, we're not finding that there are, you know, there, we're, we want to focus on gender this year and defining what diversity looks like for your team. Okay. That means that we really want to narrow in our focus on, on uh, making sure that we have enough um, uh, female leadership. Are we doing enough in the recruitment process? And then, okay, we have identified that we have a very diverse slate. Are they getting through the recruitment process? Um, are there any gaps that we can you know, improve to make sure that this is an objective recruitment process for every, everyone is able to succeed? Um, and then you can turn your, your, your uh, attention toward you know, are we doing everything to support women within the organization? And are we developing women um, in the same ways that we are in, you know, other, other uh, men and, and other groups? Um, so by creating a repeatable, measurable process with, with that kind of structure and objective structure, you're able to bake it in. And then you can narrow your focus if it's not working and figure out, you know, which little tweaks to make. I guess one of the, 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 the concepts I'd sort of like to explore, because, we, you know, this is second time in the conversation that that, that competency-based framework has, has come up. Um, and I, I think one of the 
Um, one of the, the sort of techniques I use when trying to align a person's experience to, uh, to specifically a job description or specifically a role is to use behavioral-based questioning or competency-based questioning. Um, have you guys got much experience on bringing that into the interview process? Because um, I think for, for a lot of people, it's very easy to have a conversation where you sort of align on ideas, but you never really drill down into specifics. And you come out at the other end of the conversation thinking, that was a really good conversation. This person can definitely do that job and then you go back and have a second conversation with them about specific parts of what they should be doing and you realize that actually that person never did anything to do that job they maybe sat next to the other person that did it or, or some, something along those lines so um just i guess to give a sort of a uh, uh, an actionable point out the end of this what what, what th thoughts do you have on the the competency-based interviewing framework yeah yeah i would um just to to, to start off there um I, this is one way i advise the you know, again, hiring managers, co-founders, portfolio companies, um, is to start with a with a blueprint. Um, and, and this, what I'm about to kind of talk through, is pulled from uh, one of my favorite recruiting books um, called "Who: <laughs> A Method for Hiring." So, "Who: A Method from Hiring," and they talk about this blueprint. Um, so, when you go to hire, make to, to create the, the job scope for a hire. Um, think about um, a scorecard, and not necessarily the scorecard that you would use when you're evaluating somebody in an interview process, but just think about it more as like a blueprint. And ask yourself what the mission of this person is going to be. What's the mission of this position? Keep it super simple, you know, but specific. And, and, and try to get yourself to answer, why does this role exist? Because I think um, one, one um, opportunity for for um, hiring managers is to not solve problems with people. So if it's a short-term problem, we talked about this, if it's a short-term view, you might hire somebody and not realize that that wasn't necessary or that doesn't really kind of um, lead, lend itself into kind of the overall uh, vision of the, of, of the organization. That's where you kind of get yourself into trouble. So, you know, what's, why does this role exist? And then we talked about this before, the outcomes that must be accomplished. So what are the outcomes that this person needs to achieve? And you could almost, I mean, you're already doing the work of their onboarding plan. So you're getting out of, you're getting this away, you know, out of the way early on in the interview process, but you're going to putting their onboarding plan into motion. So kind of think about this as like their onboarding plan. And that might be, you know, three or five goals that this person needs to accomplish. Okay. And then the next step is the competencies. And this is where you bake this into your interview process. How do they need to behave in order to fulfill the outcomes that you have listed? Um, so for example, the, the how is a combination between your company's you know, vision and culture, you know, the internal operating system of your organization. So if it's incredibly important that you hire people who are very empathetic, you know, you have a very customer centric culture um, that you bake, you know, empathy into the recruitment process because that's important for them to navigate through the organization forever. And then you add on top of that a layer of skills that are important for those outcomes again. And then maybe you bake into kind of like the nice to haves, maybe like potential leadership skills. So you can, you know, they can grow with the organization. So kind of think through a little bit of the competencies and how that person needs to um, behave in order to achieve those outcomes. And then define those competencies. So it's one thing to say, okay, they need problem solving skills or they need to be, you know, be able to um, be strong, uh, you know, planners or they need to have strong presentation skills. Uh, that's fine. But then actually add a definition to each one of those. And when you're going through the recruitment process, think about the questions that you ask 
the answers that you get and how that individual's answers fit into the definition. So if perhaps problem solving is one of the competencies that you decide on, give yourself a definition. So maybe I, I happen to have something in front of me around problem solving. So like an example definition would be, you know, um, can see hidden problems, um, can solve problems with data, um, uses, you know, rigorous logic and methods to solve different problems. Great. So when you're asking them questions, do their answers demonstrate that this person has, you know, a, an ability to use data to solve problems? Um, they think, you know, uh, in advance, um, they anticipate issues popping up. Um, you know, how has their answers, again, been able to um, support the definition of this? And that allows you to rate them more objectively. And again, it allows you to stick more to the plan based on what you expect them to achieve in their, in their jobs. So again, by keeping yourself super objective, um, evidence-based, definition-based, it'll allow you to listen for certain themes that tie back to what you actually need. I think it probably also does a really good job of actually directing what your questions should actually actually do. You know, if you're looking for a particular outcome, it becomes a lot a lot easier to ask questions to get you to that outcome. I think so. Yeah, very very interesting points. Thank you. Okay, um, so coming along to the final couple of parts of the the podcast now. Um, so last question um, before the everybody's favorite section, which is the quick fire question round. Um, so the, the last question is, and 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 sort of we'll 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 take out the um, give Sam a call as the answer to this. Um, but what's the best piece of advice that you can give to a founder to focus on during during talent acquisition? Um, if you could give them one piece of advice, I'll I'll start with this one again. Um, one of my pieces of advice, and again, this is coming more so from my experience operating internally as a recruitment manager or as a recruiter. Um, but the one piece of advice I would have is, is leverage your recruiter, your in-house recruiter or your recruiter contact early and often. I think that, um, you know, oftentimes people don't connect the dots between decisions that they've made and the people impact. And I used to have a, an HRBP um, call this uh, the blast radius, the, your decision-making kind of blast radius. Because every decision that you make, and I'll go out on a limb to say every decision that is made, there is a people effect. So whether that is, you know, uh, deciding to roll out a new product um, or, you know, going into a new market, there is a people effect who's going to build that product, how will that product be sold and positioned, um, who do we need to do that, um, how do we need to explain that to the organization to get buy-in. You know, there are, there's a stream of different knock-on effects from every decision and, and that all involves people. So by having somebody who's been hired to think with people in mind um, and to think about those knock-on effects, you're able to get that, um, kind of sounding board, again, going back to diversity, that diversity of kind of thought who can bring up, okay, that decision has these people effects. Let's, let's work through that. And not only do they have these people effects, but that means that you need this type of person in the organization. So that means it's going to change our hiring scope and let's get, let's get started on that earlier. So I think again, just bringing in your recruiter early and often because they're programmed to think about people in mind. While they might not be programmed to, you know, uh, release a new product, they'll be programmed to help highlight, you know, how that might affect the people. And let's kind of reduce friction in those areas so we can 
go forth with your decision faster, more effectively, and and without um, without any issues really on the people side. Can uh, I do I two? Do <laughs> <laughs> As long as one of them is um, So actually, I just wanted to kind of um, jump on the same bandwagon here and, and just talking about the internal um, talent person and, and kind of directing it to more early stage. Um, I think um, have talent as a consideration right as early as possible. So even if it is not your head of talent or you haven't hired that person yet, someone in that leadership team or that founding team should take on and wear that yeah. hat of that head of talent. Yeah. Um, and, um, and if you do have a head of talent or something um, on the team, then it's actually to involve them in the high level decision-making and holistic strategy, because the worst thing for an internal recruiter and internal talent person is when they are not exposed to the entire business strategy, when they only see a minute portion of the strategy that makes them, you know, order takers and, and just, they'll just execute, but they don't have the bigger picture. So that was number one. <laughs> um, I think I, I do have to say, I think the, the other piece of advice I would give is, and I just probably the third time I've said this now, but it is having that talent structure very early on. Um, so if I go back to my little pyramid analogy, it is having your vision, your mission, your values um, at the very core determine what that is that then dictates what your talent structure or your entire organizational structure and processes and systems. And then at the very top of the pyramid, uh, the people, then you bring in great people that operate in an environment with great processes and systems with, with you know, defined values and, and missions and visions, then um, that's how you can um, build it successfully. Uh, I'll, I'll jump in after that. So uh, both uh, for me, very salient points, but I'll talk about um, another uh, part that's uh, important to me. Um, and something I see isn't really a process a lot of people, a lot of founders go through necessarily. Um, some are good, some are not. Um, is do you really need to hire this person? Like, I find a lot of the time, um, a lot of founders have not they've almost compartmentalized what somebody can do um, despite the fact that they've hired them for their kind of intelligence, their attitude, their ability to adapt, blah, blah, blah. Um, there often is a, I often come away from a conversation um, when I'm taking a briefing or uh, understanding a job that, or that needs to be filled that um, uh, the, the founder hasn't necessarily looked internally for that role to be um, covered by someone um, uh, who's already in the business, who already knows the business. Um, and I like it, I, I like it more when, when founders um, are hiring someone because they absolutely need someone. It means it's more attract, it, it ends up being more attractive to the person who takes the role. Um, but I find um, with certain companies that I've spoken to in the past, there's they especially as they start to get into the um, at, at an early stage, it's okay. But when they get into a latest uh, a middle later stage, there's a bit of complacency about this, where they're like, oh, we need to hire X amount of people. Like hiring plans for the year, we need to hire 20 people, and of course they need to increase capacity. But they're not thinking about it. They're not. Um, 
thinking about it as a each individual hire is very important. Um, and I and for me, um, even if you, I don't mind if you delegate that that kind of uh, understanding. Say you've got a sales team and they need they they've gotten up to the plan is for the year for twenty people and you've got say ten at the start of the year. Okay, you've got a plan to get kind of twenty people, but reassess that as you're going along make sure that you really need every individual person because your financial resources um, are really important at this stage and and also you don't want to dilute your quality the, the quality of the people that you're bringing on board you'll you'll end up diluting the culture you'll end up diluting your kind of strategy as well for me being really consistent at that kind of looking back at your company looking back at yourself and going do i really need to make this additional hire um as i say i suppose it doesn't really it doesn't necessarily apply to the early stage founders because they're quite good at that because they don't have much money but when they get into when they do get their injections of cash that sometimes gets left behind um, and the better founders or the better the stronger companies i find are those who who take every single hire very very seriously they build super robust companies because they've been careful about every they've thought very carefully about every single person that's come on board um and they will make absolute use of, of everyone that comes on board if that doesn't sound too callous thank you that that all of those points were, were awesome um I'm thinking of actually turning this into a book and releasing it now. Um, <laughs> um, I, I guess that's 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 the last of the questions. I think we're on now to the the quick fire round. We're going to go alphabetical, which means we'll go Christian, Oli, Rachel. As I think I've got my alphabet correct there. Um, so uh, so we're starting with Christian. Um, what is the best advice you've been given? In general, or <laughs> as it pertains to. <laughs> I'm going to deviate from the hiring. I'm going to go with my general best advice that I've ever been given. Fine. Okay. Okay. Um, the best advice that I've ever been given um, was, this is a really quick answer, but is show up. That is the best advice I've ever been given. And the reason being is, again, deviating from talent a little bit, but you don't learn unless you show up and are open to opportunity. And um, every single, and this maybe we can, I can tie this back to recruiting, but opportunistically talking to somebody, going to a networking event, making yourself available, being present, showing up, you'll, you never know who you may meet. Anyway, my best advice is to show up. It's just make yourself open to opportunity. And that also means opportunity networking with, you know, top talent as well. Um, just be present, be available. And you never really know who you're going to meet, who's going to add a ton of value to your organization. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, for me, it's actually from my dad, and it is outside of all uh, professional stuff, or whatever. Um, is he he uh, went I don't know snorkeling at the age of seventy nine. He's super old, my dad, and he didn't give me this advice. He never gives me barely any advice ever. Um, but the fact that he did that kind of bled into advice I've been given about don't rush things like you're going to get uh, like I'm all about experience and I want to maximize my life experiences whatever as every Instagrammer wants to as well like don't rush things things will come at a later stage you can learn things really late in life um, or that sort of thing and that 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 not rushing taking your time um, has really helped me to calm down and know that over time 
um, you will pick up these things, skills, experiences over time. You don't have to do it all before you're 30, shit like that. And that's calm. It's not only calmed me down massively, but it's actually that attitude. People see that and, and they allow you in a lot more. Whereas those people who are rushing and trying to get like everything in the next five minutes, um, people are like, yeah, I don't like that. Like, I don't want you anywhere near me. Um, so that, that to me was, it's right. It's not necessarily a, uh, advice, but more of a lesson, uh, from my dad in that one. Can I do two? <laughs> um, I think from a, from a um, personal perspective, it is that, um, you know, stick with your core values. Um, it's your true north. And I think perhaps more from a business perspective, um, the best advice I was given was, you know, when you are building something, you build it, um, build the system yourself first on a spreadsheet. If you can't build it yourself, don't try and engage a third party to do it for you because you don't understand it. Excellent. Um, okay, next question. Um, what is your favorite terrible management slogan? For Ooh. example, when the tide goes out, you can see who's been swimming naked. Well, um, teamwork makes the dream work, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm not ready for you yet. <laughs> okay, we'll come back. <laughs> um, Sink or swim, only because I think it is a bit mean. <laughs> Fair enough. I oh, there's so much. There's, I, I think the trouble is there's too much to hate. Too many of them, yeah. <laughs> and the, the trouble is, I like it. I, I, I mean, more generally, like the business rhetoric, especially in the VC space, that you find yourself saying, saying like describing things as solid and blah blah blah. Like it's not necessarily a slogan, but it's the entire like lexicon around it and i find myself saying stuff and i'm like i hate myself i hate <laughs> myself for saying some of this stuff but yeah i i there's no i can't pick out one specific one in okay. an instant there's way too many okay so uh, next question that's all right that's all right next question tell me something that's true that almost nobody agrees with you on oh i'm gonna go political okay. uh <laughs> okay. I, I think brexit might have been a good idea Oh my god! And, and I'll leave it at that. Part two of the podcast will be Brexit. No, <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Right. Um, you can't watch Frozen two too many times. <laughs> wow. I, 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 with two little girls, I am so with you. I know that movie went for it. Exactly. I love all the songs. <laughs> yep. It has layers. It has layers. Um, uh, Christian. Wait, tell me, wait, repeat the question again. Okay. Um, uh, tell me something that's true that almost nobody agrees with you on. Something that's true that almost nobody. Oh, that I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> About everything. About everything. <laughs> Okay. I was just going to say, like, mine wasn't ne necessarily true, so mine's an incorrect answer. But I would say that Marmite with peanut butter on toast is amazing, and I don't think many people agree with me on that. It is beautifully tasty, though. Okay. I'm going to take your word for that. Um, okay, and that might answer the next question, which is, what is your favorite food? It's not that. <laughs> I'll tell you my favorite meal. I, this is the this is the English side of me. But my favorite meal is um, 
I guess no more, I've stopped eating meat, but roast beef and Yorkshire pudding. So I guess just Yorkshire pudding at this point. <laughs> yes. Veggie gravy. Yeah. All right, uh, it's uh, lamb roast is obviously more refined. Come on. Showing from the roasts here. Uh, Rach? Um, my mum's cooking. There we go. So she's in Malaysia and I miss her cooking. Okay. What's, her, what's her specialty? Well, it's Malaysian cuisine. So it's very Asian, um, Chinese mixed with a, a bit of Malay kind of influence. <laughs> yes. Nice. Um, okay. Favorite color? Christian? Blue. Ollie? Green. Rachel? Green. Yeah. Also green, right? <laughs> Favorite band? <sighs> The Beastie Boys. Nice. Whoa. Faith No More. Faith No More. Nice. Uh, Christian? Queen's my favorite band. Very nice. Okay. Um, only a couple to go. Um, the first place <laughs> you will visit post COVID? My local pub down the road with friends. Anywhere where there's just sunshine, salt water, and sand, I think. That's... Okay. So, Singapore, I guess we'll say in Singapore. <laughs> I'm going with the pub as well. Definitely yeah. the pub. <laughs> yeah, down Telok, Telok I and Telok, just yeah. like in the sun, sitting outside, <laughs> drinking hand. Yep, I can do that. Okay. Um, two to go. What are you currently watching on Netflix? What am I watching? That should have been easy. I have exhausted like so many Netflix <laughs> things. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> so, okay. Um, Oh, Afterlife with Future Face. It's really good, but a little bit uh, depressing. Um, and something a little bit more lighthearted I just discovered was Magic on Humans. Street Magician. It's really funny. Yeah, I've just, I think it's Netflix, right? Just finished up The Last Dance by Michael Jordan. That one was really good. That documentary was really good. Um, very inspirational. Um, uh, so a lot of takeaways from that. Um, been watching what else on netflix um they've had all these like documentaries come out recently i watched one on i mean this is a little depressing but there's one really good one called the innocence files um and it's about um exonerated prisoners in the u.s who were um put away for crimes that they didn't do so they kind of go through the whole process mm. of you know reintroducing dna um, uh yeah yeah, that just that didn't exist when they went away, or you know, trials that weren't were not fair, or representation that didn't do the best job. So again, they kind of poke holes and shed light on all the areas in the justice system in the U.S. That's that's pretty flawed, but it's interesting. Uh, I've just just finished Piggy Blinders season five. Uh -huh. Not sure what what to do with my life now. <laughs> <laughs> I must say, I'm steering clear of anything to do with sports, having stacked on a load of weight during COVID. So. <laughs> even worse about myself and, and the last the very last question um what is your most obscure hobby drinking who drinks these days right? oh, <laughs> my most obscure hobby is probably exercising uh, <laughs> it, is right now. it is now you know uh i guess it's not really a hobby but one of the things i liked i have a cockatiel i have a little bird at home so oh. i guess what that's cool. playing with a cockatiel, yeah. Uh, I think I think my most obscure because people are very surprised when I tell them I do it, and they respond like, mm, 
you don't look like you do that uh, is boxing mm. Mm. you yeah. don't look like Agreed. you do that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I didn't like that. <laughs> oh gosh um actually for me and it's been an obscure hobby for a long time is actually reading fantasy books ah. i have a thing for dragons and you know magicians and mages I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. I'm a massive nerd. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And that brings us to the end. Um, Christian, Ollie, Rachel, thank you so, so much for joining us on the podcast. Um, I wish you all the very best. Thank you very much. And we'll catch you next time. No worries. Thanks. Have, have, Thanks, have fun editing that. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to edit it at all. I'm just going to miss the whole thing. Oh, no. <laughs> No, thank you. Thank you, Sam. It's thank been you. fun. It's been thank very, you. very fun. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Southeast Asia's Growth Leaders with me, Sam Randall. In the next episode, we head to Thailand for a conversation with Axel Winter, the CTO for the Thai commerce giant Central Group. In this episode, we discuss the evolution of retail and e-commerce in Southeast Asia, the exciting work he's done in building a technology organization for Central Group and the future of the industry. I look forward to seeing you next time. Stay safe and farewell. <laughs>